Today's show is sponsored in part by InterOptic. Fortune 500 companies choose InterOptic optical transceivers to minimize the risk of network failures and maximize IT savings. InterOptic's transceivers are 100% guaranteed compatible with Cisco, Juniper, Extreme, Arista, and others, and available at a fraction of the cost. Work with the optics experts at InterOptic. Go to interoptic.com packet-pushers to find out more. Register now for the Packet Pushers live stream with sponsored Glueware happening September 28th, 2021. The topic, low-code network automation. No one's going to bother you after the event unless you opt in for follow-up. And scheduled speakers include Terry Slattery, the first CCIE. So register at packetpushers.net slash livestream. That's packetpushers.net slash livestream. Heavy Networking adds another episode of the Future of Networking series we've been doing off and on for years now in today's series entry, Quantum Communications. Important note, I did not say quantum computing. While quantum communications and quantum computing are related, they are different disciplines with different applications, and we're focused today on the communications and networking aspects of the quantum realm. Our guest is Dr. Joshua Slater. Josh is a quantum scientist and engineer at QTech in the Delft area, Netherlands. Josh, welcome to Heavy Networking. So we're going we're going quantum, man. And so would you expand for us that bit I mentioned in the intro? Because that I wrote that in the intro about the difference between quantum computing and quantum networking, because you corrected me as we were uh, prepping for this show. So explain that to all of us. What is the difference between quantum computing and quantum networking or communications? Yeah, that's right. I remember when we were talking about that, uh, Ethan. So quantum computers, you can really think of them as like computers. They are really powerful machines. They will sit in one place, in one room, hopefully, and they will use quantum mechanics and they will be extremely good at calculating certain things. They're extremely good at doing things like optimization problems, for instance. And in most places in the world, they draw a distinction between quantum computing, where you have these singular machines in one room, and quantum networking or quantum communications or quantum internet. We kind of throw those words around a lot interchangeably. But all of this is about getting quantum stuff from one location to another to kind of do useful things in the communication networking domain. So usually we're talking about moving a qubit or a quantum state or really fancy quantum stuff like quantum entanglement from one place to another, communicating that quantum data. So let me try and just unpick that or or tease that out a little bit. In traditional networking, we either use a optical signal or an electrical signal as a bearer for encoding data on top of it. So a light pulse with data encoded into the pulses or from the pulses or an electrical signal, used to be a pulse, now it's actually an encoding, generally an 84, 80, 82-bit, something like that, the encoding mechanism on top of the pulse to get the data from point A to point B. If I'm, now that's a very traditional analog sort of way of thinking, but as best as I can understand from my reading, quantum networking is not that idea. It's not this idea of encoding on a bearer signal like we do with optical and electrical. It's actually sort of entanglement in the atoms themselves. Sorry, Greg, I would disagree with you from the start. I would okay. normally say quantum communication is, is is encoding onto optical signals. So in the communication, right. even in the quantum communication space, we, we need to send something physical between locations. And optics, light, this is the best thing. I, their, their optical fiber is great. Free space transmission can also be good. So we, yeah. we really do use this. But then we use single particles of light at a time. 
And then we need to encode that quantum state or that qubit of data onto that single particle of light. So I, myself and many others that are deep in this, we would always see the qubit or the quantum information as really an encoding of quantum data right. onto that single particle of light, onto that single photon. Let me just try and poke this bear yeah, a little bit so I can come up with, because I'm coming from a very much from a novice point of yeah. view. Yeah. Qubit computing is normally by changing the state of the atoms in the electrons around the atoms to be able to emulate the concept of transistors on off and form them into gate arrays. Yeah, that's right. That That's yeah, definitely right. one way to see computing. Yeah. All right. Computing too. Sorry, I come from an era of phase gate arrays and things like that back in the days of analog electronics. And I have a, a model of, anal, of transistors and, and sure. digital, which is very analog centric because that was how it was done back in my day. So if you're transmitting a quantum signal or a signal across a quantum network or a quantum communication, is there some syntax here I should be getting right? No, I don't think so. Quantum information, a quantum mm. state, a qubit, we kind of all use those interchangeably as well. Yeah. Right. So you're actually talking about modifying a single photon to yeah. carry the code and then transmitting the photon between two points and one can encode the photon by spin or in some way one and then the other encode, end can decode it. One can encode data onto the photon, quantum data onto the photon by manipulating something like its polarization or its temporal profile or something like this, then transmitting that photon to the other side where it can be read by the receiver. Temporal profile implying state by time. So you're exactly, actually, yeah. right, yeah. so temporal means time. Yeah. Right? So when you say temporal profile, you're saying you inject data onto it at, at this instant in time, and then you can unencode it by knowing how, like if I, how do you decode temporal profile or data encoded by time? This is getting technical quick, but I can just say, mm. so photons don't exist at a single point in time. They have a, a temporal envelope. Yeah. So they they always have some temporal width, some 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 or or some length when they're say traveling down an optical fiber. And you can even if it's a single photon, it exists in over some space, yeah, in the fiber. And yeah. you can adjust the amplitude effectively of that photon over its temporal profile, and that is a way to encode quantum data because it's okay. still one photon. That, that's a really tricky one to understand. It's much easier to start with something like polarization or spin because <laughs> polarization and spin is effectively a, a two, yeah, it's a, what we call a two-level system. It's uh, yeah. polarization is horizontal or vertical. It can be pointing in different directions. Same with spin. It's much easier to visualize that than it is to picture modulating but, into the- But the you're temporal. still talking about taking yeah. a single photon, manipulating it uniquely and deliberately. Exactly whether yeah. you say by spinning it in an, a, a given direction. And yeah. then at the other end, there has to be a decoder or a receiver that can unencode that single photon. You got it. But it still propagates down, but we're still using the same signaling mechanisms, in this case, optical, as we would normally understand. It's just the way that the data is encoded on the optical signal is gone from pulsing the laser up, down, you know, on, off kind of thing, to actually modifying the photons in flight and then being able to receive the photons and then decode the state that's been encoded into them. Yeah, and just a little more detail onto that last point. The, it's, it's really about we, we have to go down to a single photon at a time, and then we adjust properties of that photon 
that effectively are quantum properties. They are properties of one and only one and only one particle. And that what's being represented isn't merely a zero and a one. Uh, we're not talking just binary. There could be a variety of different states, right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. So qubits, for instance, these are the the language we often like to speak. They're they're very specific one. You can think of them as you can think of them as kind of existing on a sphere in some sense. You, if we think of it as a spin, so if that spin is up, we call that zero, and if that spin is down, we call that one. But that spin can point in any other direction and in, in kind of three dimensional space on this sphere. Uh, so, in a way, and all these other points kind of on the sphere, like pointing, say, into your screen or out of your screen instead of up and down, these we call the superposition states, where the spin of that particle is both up and down, but with some particular phase relationship, we always say. It's much like phasers in, um, in conventional yeah. optics or electrical signals. Yeah, because uh, a photon is loosely a sphere. It's, and it's, it's partly a bundle of energy and it's partly a physical object, if I remember right. And a ball. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so what, so just because you encode state in one frame of reference doesn't mean you can't encode states in other frames of reference. Yeah, completely true. That's right. Yeah. Right. You could encode a qubit into polarization and mm -hmm. spin and another qubit into, into time. There's also angular momentum you can play with. Yep. Yeah. You could do all these independent. You need very sophisticated uh, encoders and decoders. Generally, we don't do that because it's easier just to make another qubit. But yeah. you're right. We could. Yep. I'm I'm just sort of probing some basics of this sort of idea because yeah, I just sure. I, I'm trying to you know the idea there is normally we just get a an electrical signal and we increase the voltage and we decrease the voltage and congratulate each other on how clever we are. But here, <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, and then I used to think that was very clever, and now I feel like a monkey who sort of discovered how to bang two rocks to make fire. Do you know what I mean? Uh, roughly, we get very excited <laughs> when we get a handful of photons at the other side. So, yep. <laughs> signal. But, <laughs> but, you know, just to take it to a stupid extreme, what I think to be the stupid extreme, and you're probably going to tell me it's not that stupid, but you could take one Focon and not just encode a single bit, you can actually encode multiple bits of data in multiple frames of reference, like in the in the vertical, in the horizontal, some frame of reference you could encode it with spin. You can actually do multiple things to a single, not that you would practically, because it just, how, how do you do that? How do you create the, that, form that Photon? condition and then how do you decode that photon condition sounds incredibly difficult but that's logically the extension very very close yeah we can mm. encode qubits we would say encode qubits instead of bits so mm. encode qubits into different degrees of freedom the polarization is one degree of freedom angular momentum spin temporal profile like i shouldn't have mentioned at the start are other degrees of freedom which could also house a qubit yeah. right so, so practically speaking, then, do you do data transmission in something other than binary, the traditional zeros and ones? Do you use multiple states um, or practically do you just keep it yeah. binary? This is where it gets really tricky, I'd say. So if you have a single qubit, you can, you can encode a qubit state, which is, again, sort of this three-dimensional vector three-dimensional spin in a sense yeah like it's not just zero up it's not just down one it can point in any direction and what that means is in principle there's an infinite number of bits that can describe the direction that a qubit is is spinning or pointing yeah 
So in principle, there's an infinite amount of bits that are encoded in there. But the problem is, as soon as you, you measure a qubit, it always collapses to just a single bit. Yeah, so we can encode in principle lots, but as soon as we go to decode, we only get one bit out. And right. that is that a, sort that of is comes back annoying. to the that sort of comes back to the Heisenberg idea. Everything that you yeah. measure inherently impacts on the thing being measured. And it's for quantum related. mechanics, yeah. Yeah. the very yeah. process of touching the photon, that's a metaphorical touching, not not in a bad way. <laughs> <laughs> Just by by anyone else looking at the photon, or even yourself mm. looking at the photon, yeah. But there's really a, a fundamental theorem that you can only get one bit of uh, information out at the end. But nevertheless, those other bits are there, and you can do, for instance, processing on them. If you were to yeah. get that that qubit that you've been transmitting in the quantum communication networking internet domain, if you were to convert that into the quantum computing domain, which is a different game and different devices you could do processing on more than just a single bit because there are more than one bit that represents that qubit state. And this is to say nothing so far about quantum entanglement, which is a whole <laughs> different game. <laughs> we we got to get to entanglement in a bit here, but okay. there's, yeah, another, yeah. there's another challenge here that we need to understand, which is qubit decay. That is, once you've encoded a qubit and transmitted, it doesn't live very long, as I understand it. Can you explain that? Yeah, no, that's really true. That's really true. So this is, in the communication domain, the biggest problem is really the exact same problem uh, that, that Greg and his cohort would be familiar with as well, which is just loss inside the, the channel, loss inside optical fiber whenever you're communicating, right? Signal loss. We're dealing with a single particle of light at a time. And if there's 3 dB loss in that channel, that means there's a 50% chance that photon is not going to come out the other side of that channel and it's gone. It's just gone. There's no way. There's no way around that. It, it's gone. Well, yeah. The laser signal. It's I don't know millions of photons. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Per... And it's an insane engineering accomplishment that we have optical fiber with that can stretch at 20 kilometers and only have what is it 0.2 dB per, per kilometer or so, right? Like a mass amount of light gets through, but still every particle we lose, that qubit is gone, and so that's a problem. Mm. We what we have to do is always kind of post-select on which qubits got across the channel and not all of them will. Yeah. So loss, because if you're encoding a single photon, the yeah. loss of a single photon means complete data loss exactly. at a fundamental level, right? Whereas in exactly. normal laser pulse, we transmit a pulse of, which is a, which is at a physical level, millions, billions, trillions of photons at some level. I can't, wouldn't know exactly how to decode the right answer there and losing a, you know, Losing 10% of those photons has no impact on the signal whatsoever, which is 0.3 dB. And yeah. even if there is some loss in the channel, like 10 gig Ethernet, et cetera, there's forward error correction in the receiving optic to fill in the blank, which is that a thing, something like FEC in the world of qubits? We're working on it. So at this stage, we're good at generating qubits. We're good at putting them in optical fiber, and we're good at getting them out of the optical fiber uh, into our receivers. There's a lot of work that is going on in what we call quantum repeaters. And one aspect of these quantum repeaters is essentially what you said, is forward error correction. But, uh, but that, is a, that is a big challenge uh, because for forward error, well, just error correction in general, we need each of kind of each station on our network to have a little bit of processing capability. 
So we need small, probably uh, efficient and uh, single purpose quantum processors. They're different from quantum computers typically because they're really built for the purpose of just doing error correction on mm-hmm. the communication channel. Uh, but that's still a big challenge, which is years down the road still. So here's where we're at. We've got yeah. the ability to generate a qubit, encode it as a photon, transmit it to the other end, decode it, and then get some – it becomes data at some point, right? There, there is some – there is a data representation that has happened here just through the magic of quantum – but it doesn't sound very high bandwidth. It doesn't sound, you know, it sounds fraught with peril and, and issues with the physical channel, losing my photons and such. So what can I do with this today? What, what are the use cases for this technology today, if, if any? So the main use case people basically we all think about today is really in the field of cryptography. And that's because of things like what Greg said, right? If, if anyone looks at your qubit when it is being transmitted down the channel, they will intrinsically disturb that qubit. And as long as the qubit made it to the other side, you can see that someone has disturbed it or not disturbed it, if the case is. So so by disturbing it, that means what? Cut it, spliced into a piece of fiber to spy on what's going on through the channel? For instance, yeah. If there was uh, any other kind of receiving device, any other device that may have tried to extract data from that qubit, that would intrinsically create disturbances that would be readable. And, and therefore, if you know that the qubit was disturbed when you finally get it on the other end, then you, you can react to that. I know that there's something bad has happened and you can, this is no longer a trusted channel. You can make decisions based on that change of state. Exactly. Exactly. So what we're all thinking about is a, there's a whole field called quantum key distribution. And the idea behind it is really, let's try to distribute keys for cryptography by encoding each bit into a different photon or different qubit, sending them across the channel. We see which ones made it to the other side. And if we lose some, that's okay. That's just bits we don't use in a secret key down the road. So we kind of post-select on just those qubits that made it. And then we check and we see, is there any disturbance? If there's no disturbance, then both sides now have a bit string that's identical, which they can use uh, as like an encryption key. No, wait a minute. You said if we lose bits, that's okay because we're just gonna we're gonna use we're gonna construct a key based on whatever made it to the other side. But then exactly. the origin side doesn't know what got sent. That's sort so of so the matters. receiving side. The receiving side has to say back to the origin side. These are the bits that got across. Don't the 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 receiving side doesn't say what the values are. Only these ones made it. Oh, okay. These are the bits that made it. You you know what you sent me. Fill in the fill you in the blank. Yeah. Sent, okay. Huh? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, and then <laughs> then it's an identical bit string. We can use this for cryptographic keys, right? So the whole there's the big field, the big application that's on everyone's mind right now is quantum key distribution for distributing these keys. Like I said, and the motivation behind that is actually because of another unfortunate thing that is coming up in the quantum world, and this is that quantum computers, like we said right at the start, quantum computers are very good at certain kinds of problems. And one of the things they are unfortunately very good at is breaking public key cryptography. So all the public key methods that are uh, certified today for use that are standardized, they can all be broken very quickly by a quantum computer, which means if you're using these public key distribution to distribute a key, 
someone with a quantum computer could crack that. Well, define very quickly. Are we talking, you know, hours or are we still talking like some of these, if you were to try to brute force it, you're into decades or unrealistic amounts of compute time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So the reason for these algorithms, why they're secure is as you increase the size of your key, the time it takes with a conventional computer uh, grows exponentially, right? With a quantum computer, it grows linearly or or better uh, or faster, which means you need basically unpractically long keys for a quantum computer to need more than minutes, most likely. It depends on the size of the computer. There's a lot of assumptions that go into it, but uh, it's a real worry by real people in the field. There's a a whole field that looks at how can we make conventional algorithms that are safe against quantum computers. And the only thing really stopping that from impacting the world of security and cryptography as we know it right now is that quantum computers are very expensive and difficult to come by. Exactly. And then they're also at the moment small and uh, they don't have enough qubits inside of them yet to actually break someone's uh, public key distribution, break someone's uh, cryptographic keys. But it could happen one day. Uh, somebody just announced a 100 qubit computer. I don't remember who it was, but you know, nor had they demoed it yet. They just announced that they could do this. But in theory, if that's real, I suppose we're getting ever closer. We're getting closer. Yeah. Yeah. So we want to, I mean, one of the big things inside quantum computing, uh, sorry, quantum networking, quantum communication is to say, okay, we can already do at least this. We can already make this problem of key distribution go away uh, with with quantum key distribution. So this is just for distributing. So this is the initial use case is just to distribute keys because normal keys can be just cracked by a quantum computer. That's right. Now, this quantum key distribution you've done, in other words, the whole reason you came up on our radar was because of some work you did uh, in conjunction with Cisco to, to actually do this work. So, so talk us through that. Yeah, yeah. No, thanks. Thanks. So um, we had, so here in, in QTech in the Netherlands, we had a, a really nice demonstration of a quantum key distribution system that we've been working on for a while. This was also in partnership, not just with Cisco, but also with KPN, which is one of the big telco providers inside the Netherlands. We were using standard fibers between KPN buildings in The Hague and our buildings at QTech in Delft and another KPN building in a, in a very small Dutch city called Reiswijk. If you don't know what this is, no problem. And <laughs> we basically built a little three-node uh, network that allowed for quantum key distribution between Delft and The Hague, between our building and the, the KPN building. And actually on the same fibers at the same time, we had a whole bunch of Cisco equipment running as well. So Cisco was basically generating 10 gigabit per second standard Ethernet traffic over the same fibers alongside our qubits, which is generally very challenging. In the same strand, the same optical strand? In the same optical strand, in the same physical core, we were using some custom-built multi- DWM multiplexers to get our signals together. For us, it's an annoying challenge because we're dealing with single particles of light at a time. And the Cisco networking equipment is dealing with much, much more than this, the millions and billions and billions. And so just a small amount of crosstalk from the Cisco channel into our channel creates unimaginable amounts of noise compared to our signal. Uh, Oh, wait a minute, crosstalk. So crosstalk in the copper world is pretty easy to understand, and you you run twists in a piece of uh, twisted pair uh, copper to help deal with that situation. So you don't want your electrical signal bleeding over into adjacent wires. What do you mean crosstalk and optical? Isn't this all? I mean, it, 
It's optical. You can't have crosstalk. So we were using one particular wavelength inside of the, this optical fiber, and the Cisco equipment was setting up two different IP networks. They're using different wavelengths inside the same optical fiber. And then to bring all our signals together, we were using DWM, dense wavelength division multiplexing tech. And these only have a finite extinction ratio at the end. So whenever you multiplex signals together, whenever you demultiplex signals apart from each other, it's not perfect. It's not literally 100%. There's always some amount of light from one channel that accidentally goes the wrong direction out the DW. DWBM demultiplexer. Which you would be particularly sensitive to because if they bleed over, if that color effectively bleeds over into your channel, you run a higher risk of losing your photon? Exactly. We see a ton of extra photons. We don't know which one's which. And then, uh, yeah, we don't know what to do anymore. Yeah. So we really had to make uh, custom built DWDMs to show that, okay, with at least with standard DWM spacing, essentially standard tech, but we made the devices custom. We could separate our signals and then we could run our network, our quantum network side by side with the Cisco's conventional networks on the same fiber between the three cities. And then we did QKD as well. We interrupt this podcast for a brief word from Packet Pusher sponsor InterOptic. InterOptic has been the trusted optical transceiver supplier for many federal, state, and local government networks and Fortune 500 companies. They provide friendly, U.S.-based, OEM-agnostic networking expertise to help you choose the best optics and fiber to future-proof your networks at the lowest cost. Why continue to pay OEM prices for optics? Talk to the experts who will deliver brand-equivalent transceivers at a fraction of the cost. InterOptic can help you and your team create a more nimble physical layer. Their optical transceivers are guaranteed 100% compatible with Cisco, Juniper, Extreme, Arista, and other switches. InterOptic physically tests every single transceiver before it's shipped, and their transceivers are built to the exact same quality standards as the OEMs and typically come from the same manufacturing lines. That means you can purchase the same, if not better performing, optical transceivers tested and designed by engineers who truly understand the specifications critical to your network at a fraction of OEM costs. It's time to take control of your optics purchases with InterOptic. Find out how at interoptic.com slash packet dash pushers. That's interoptic.com slash packet dash pushers. So, okay, Josh, so we're, we're coexisting in the same bit of fiber and we can add this quantum key distribution function. This is kind of a, a basically a proof of concept, right? That this is a thing that could be done. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you, know, you mentioned a three node network and practically speaking, there are no three node networks in the world anymore. So it, does this <laughs> scale? Could it conceptually scale beyond um, a small number of nodes? That's, Hang on, uh, when I go off grid, three is going to be a lot. <laughs> and I'm done with all of it. <laughs> and when you're off grid, are you concerned about people hacking your communication network? I don't know. Yeah. I don't no, know. Your it... problems aren't mine. I don't... <laughs> <laughs> Fair point. Fair point. No, but it in uh, Ethan, answer your question. It's true. It in practice, it does scale. That's it's very true. So right now, the quantum networking community, like I said, we're really good at generating qubits, putting them in fiber, and receiving them. Essentially, we are really good at point-to-point -point connections right now. And the very near-term challenge, which is which is which is happening in a lot of places, uh, they're starting to look at this and think about this. Is is routing around a network? How do you route quantum signals around a network? Because there's there's challenges there, right? We can't really encode routing information into the qubits themselves because we lose a lot of the qubits. 
So we don't want to lose the routing <laughs> information. Yeah. So should we do that in front of the qubits? Should we do that in parallel to the qubits? But if we're in parallel and on the same fiber, we have the crosstalk issues we talked about. A qubit is a self-sustained bit of data. You'd have to encode routing information in separate qubits, you know, in front of and behind. And then because of the loss problem, how do you guarantee that, right, all the, the information exactly. you need to know for routing makes it? Yikes. Okay. So it's it's not clear the best way to do this, even at the physical layer. Yeah. Can you can you repeat a qubit if it arrives at a station and have it you know show up with a particular state and then leave with the same state? We can do passive optical routing. So actually, with Cisco uh, at the center point inside our little network, it, the network was a, a straight line. At the center point, we were able to just do passive routing. So, so that's not that's not repeating the signal effectively. Correct. That you're literally yep. passive, but you're just sending it on a particular exactly. route. Yeah, like switching train, switching the tracks on a train network. Yeah, exactly. The optical transport network, I guess, is the the correct term for this. Yeah, yeah. As for actual repeaters, that's a, that's a trickier question. So the with a single qubit, not really, because there's no signal to regrow. If one qubit got across, that's the maximum the signal can be, in a sense. Mm -hmm. If zero got across, there's nothing left to repeat. <laughs> right. <laughs> ah, whoops. Mm. <laughs> so there's we haven't really talked about this yet. But there are techniques using what's called quantum entanglement and quantum teleportation. And I feel like that's just going to open a can of worms as soon as we go down there. <laughs> so, so before we open that can of worms before, with quantum entanglement okay. and the teleportation stuff. Uh -huh. Okay, quantum key distribution. We got that. You explained it. You've done it. Um, we can scale it at some point. There's some challenges there. Okay. Yeah. Other use cases? Are there other big ideas that we've got for quantum networking? In that short term, with where we are right now, it's basically only things inside the crypto domain. Think of if you want an identical bit string to appear at two locations and you want to be able to see if someone was listening to that bit string and you don't care if individual bits in the bit string got lost. These are kind of the limitations we have. And so mm. cryptography makes a lot of sense, generating keys. Maybe the better question actually is, in what scenarios does that key distribution make the most sense? Uh, because you know, we are talking quantum technology. It is a bit expensive. We're expensive people, maybe. <laughs> hang on, hang on. Let's just let's take, yeah. a, let's take a left turn. Before we get to entanglement and teleportation, which is kind yeah. of sounds like a science fiction novel, but I'm sure it doesn't when it's explained to you, it should probably be mentioned that the physical technology that creates these signals is not off the shelf or room temperature. These are arcane machines that take up entire, well, not quite entire, but entire houses, house-sized facilities. No, again, I have to disagree with you. <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, so, so quantum computers are, these, are the giant uh, pieces of mm. equipment that take up a lot of space and they work at minus 270 degrees Celsius typically. Those are quantum computers. Right. In the communication domain, we really use um, standard telecommunication lasers and standard telecommunication modulators. We do a little bit of uh, customization to them, but not much. It all works at room temperature. Right. And the, the system that we set up, for instance, uh, the end nodes of our station, are these are rack-mounted boxes. 
And they were, if I remember correctly, about six U in height. So it was a it was three two U yeah. rack mounted boxes. And that's our complete system. So that's not as because a quantum computer is this arcane physical sciences challenge, right? As much as yeah. it is a computing yeah. challenge. You know, how do you operate a piece of a CPU at minus 270 degrees C or is approaching, how do you generate a, as close to zero Kelvin temperature <laughs> gradient as possible and then pass and let a signal through it, right? That's a, that's a substantial yeah. physical challenge. But you're saying for quantum networking in this current form, yeah. the idea of imparting spin or state into a photon is done at room temperature using reasonably normal existing technology with only eh, minor modifications. Exactly. That's right. For what we're doing now, what the community can do really well, which is generate qubits, detect qubits, put them in fiber. This is, these are rack mounted equipment. These are room temperature operating. There is not much that is specially made. Not the fiber optic cable. Uh, the fiber optic cable is just normal fiber optic cable in the ground. I mean, KPN, mm -hmm. we just use normal KPN fiber. We were okay. literally in a ditch with data cable people at some point splicing fiber in the middle of the night, which was okay. which was an adventure in and of itself, but it's standard, <laughs> it's standard cable. The, yeah. the expensive For you part, maybe, but for normal people, not an adventure. <laughs> <laughs> something, something we like to avoid as far as is possible. Thanks very much. No, holes in the ground. Fine. Not my problem. You know? <laughs> yeah, it was neat to see. It was neat. Yeah. But so, Ethan, you're asking, is there expensive stuff? And uh, the detectors are normally expensive. So the detectors have to be uber sensitive because we're talking about single particles of light. These can run, these can run a, a pretty penny. Define millions of euros or dollars? Uh, no, tens of kilo-euros for a detector. Okay. So not, 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 okay. That's, yeah, that's not Less cheap, than a million. but that's, yeah, yeah, that's within reach of, yeah, uh, of a lot yeah, exactly. of companies that might yeah. be interested in yeah. this. Yeah. yeah. The three no network between the three of us might be a bit expensive if we're paying it out of pocket, but for yeah. a big company, <laughs> right. Hopefully, uh, tens of kilo euros is not so crazy. For the sort of companies I've worked for, yeah, you know, yeah. that's a three-year maintenance contract. Yeah, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> no big deal. Yeah. So, so Josh, thinking about other use cases, there's a qualifying question I want to understand here. It feels like we can't transmit a whole lot of data. In other words, there's not a way I can send megabits of throughput via qubits. Is that correct? The the best groups in the world are approaching, I think they've hit megabits of detected data, but it's, it's a question of how fast do you, how fast can you uh, generate a qubit and how much loss are you going over, right? So for us, for instance, we generate qubits um, at a rate of 200 megahertz, so 200 million a second, but then we lose a lot on the way to the Hague. So in the end, we have a lot less. Okay, so then another question. Does the distance, the length of the fiber run matter as far as loss? Generally, in the optical domain, the longer the fiber, the more loss you have. That's right. But then there's also splices in the fiber and connectors, but more fiber, more loss, less signal at the end, less data. But if we were doing this within a data center, let's say where the runs are dozens or maybe hundreds of meters maximum versus going kilometers... Yeah. your loss profile would be much less over those shorter distances, just like, as you were saying, just like really with any fiber optic communication. 
You got it. Exactly. Yeah. Inside a data center, yeah, you could get very high uh, qubit communication. Rate. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess the question becomes, is there any advantage in replicating what we already do with networking today, but doing it quantum instead? Do we get any benefit there? Or, or do we have to look at like what quantum key distribution is, something novel and a bit different that solves a specific problem or it's a uh, kind of a corner case, you know, a very specific thing that you're doing? I guess, I guess it comes down to this key distribution issue where if a quantum computer can crack your key trivially, which is what they sort of go on about. So if you're transmitting data in flight using, you know, an elliptical curve algorithm of some sort or, you know, whatever the between now and whenever, the suggestion here is that you can use a quantum computer to trivially crack those encryption keys and derive them, right? So therefore, being able to retransmit new keys in a secure manner becomes a major problem because you need to rotate the keys regularly, I presume? Yeah, we are actually doing that with Cisco. So from here to the Hague, we can generate key, a new AES-256 key. We were doing it every 30 seconds. Uh, and then trying to rotate these keys with the Cisco networking equipment. So we had we we passed off keys to a number of different applications. Cisco had yep. a MacSec set up on their routers, so they were encrypting all of the traffic between the locations uh, with MacSec, and we were rotating keys with them slower than once every thirty seconds, just because that's quite an annoying challenge for um, folks in the conventional networking world to rotate keys this quickly. Uh, yes. But they were rotating their keys as they came in. Right. And the, the secret here is that if you can decode a key just from the data flow, if you can decode the key, then you can decode all data flow thereafter. So exactly. if I could feed the data into a quantum computer, crack it, derive the private key, then until the Kai keys are rotated, I can then decode all the data trivially. Well, I still have to do the processing, but still notwithstanding, record it, and then I can decode it off real time or near real time. Yeah. So, but if I can rotate the keys fast enough, then I, using a quantum computer to crack the data flow, I might only get a trivial amount of data before the key gets rotated and the solution comes again. Right. Then I have to resolve yeah. the problem as, yeah. as the attacker. Yeah. Yeah. And the nice part is quantum computers are only good at cracking those public key distribution techniques. So they're, they're, marginally better, but it's not a significant factor, better at cracking something like AES itself. So it's if the, if the keys, if you have some other means to distribute keys that you then use for your AES encryption, you're, bas you're basically safe. So, so as I'm kind of wondering what other things we might do with the, this novel ability of qubits to transmit data across a wire, what I'm wondering is, is the problem space we can solve these new sorts of things like quantum computing has created this new problem that we're dealing with with quantum key distribution well if we take a step back and look at networking traditionally it's moving data across a wire in some way or another could using a stream of qubits solve that problem better more efficiently or something like that or are we really looking at use cases that are the new and novel ones, perhaps created by quantum computing or perhaps something else. Is there space in the world for quantum uh, networking to do things we've been doing conventionally, but do them better in some way that there's a win? Do you have an opinion on that? My firm belief is that quantum will not replace uh, things that are already being done in the conventional networking world, nor in the conventional computing world. Quantum does not do many things better. It does some things better, 
but uh, most things it does as well. And because quantum is much more complicated, there's no point to, to use it. Yeah, it's just as good. Right? So this is not what you're, so it, what you're alluding to, I think there is the fact that this is not the thin edge of the witch. This is not Bolt, Berenek and Newman coming up with their very, very first early packetized networking routers. And this was just the first step down 40 years of, and now we have the internet. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. Admittedly, the internet's held together with peanut butter and uh, twenty-year-old <laughs> rubber bands, but which some people call BGP, but whatever, <laughs> you know, and goodwill. Uh, you know, we could, as long as we keep wishing it works, the internet will continue to work, and that's just fine. So it's not like you're saying that quantum mechanics or quantum communications is going to is the first step in a long road to the next generation of yottabyte transmission speeds. This is a specific tool for a specific job. Exactly. It is a specific tool for specific jobs. It will run, I mean, if it works and if it takes off, it will run in parallel to all the conventional networking uh, you gentlemen know and love today, uh, PGP and otherwise. Okay, but why though? And it's rooted, my question here is rooted in qubit state. If in conventional networking, I'm dealing with zeros and ones, but with a qubit, I could have multiple states. What if I could transmit an octal instead of binary? And you know that represents uh, four bits for me in a transmission instead of one or three, or three bits. I, have to, I didn't look at the binary, but if I can transmit more than a zero and one represented in a single photon, couldn't that increase my speeds dramatically because of the ability for me to uh, encode a larger chunk of information in a single transmission? Yes, aside for the fact that when you measure that bit, that qubit at the end, you only get one bit of information out. The better question to ask is, in the long run, when we have these qubits going over a network which, where we can encode data, what else can we do with this data? And one of the things we can do is, in principle, is get these qubits into quantum computers, which means so that... Interconnects. Interconnects. Processor interconnects, yeah. Some, exactly, yeah. Which means what could happen is there may be quantum computers that are out there run by the Googles, the Amazon Web Services, the Microsoft. And if they're the only ones that have those quantum computers, they're the only ones that can take advantage of them, in a sense. But if we have quantum communication, then other people can create... Yeah their quantum states, they can just generate their qubits. This is what we're good at already is generating qubits. They can generate qubits, put some quantum state on them and use the quantum internet to get that qubit to the quantum computer for quantum processing. Hmm. Which means at that point, those quantum computers from the Googles, the Amazons, the Microsoft, which were there, but only they had access to, if you're connected to that quantum internet, you can make use of the quantum processing power of those computers. And that's yeah. kind of the... And that's kind of the grail, right? Because you're not... When you're processing thing. in qubits, right? And there's a key yeah. here. We didn't really drive into this earlier in the discussion is the concept of a yeah. quantum computer processing qubit is very different to the idea of bits inside of a normal electrical ASIC, right? And conceptually what... And the way that I came up with a mental model, and I'd, I'd want... I hope you validate this or dispel my illusions. Either way is fine is that 
in electrical computing, we're seeing the rise of silicon photonics. And this is the idea that you can actually create a laser on the die of the CPU or the switching ASIC, right? So, and you can actually then connect these fibers directly to it and then no longer have to, and then connect directly to an adjacent ASIC or out to an external interface. And this is a, a step change in the performance of electrical communications in the sense that instead of having to propagate a current down a circuit for a certain distance, and one of the challenges of modern motherboards is that they're so far, they're so large as the signals get so fast, like six inches, a six inch motherboard is an enormous distance to travel when you're clocking a signal at five gigahertz, right? Mm-hmm. Off a tiny, tiny, like a two volt or a 1.2 volt signal. That just becomes this infinitely large distance. And so silicon photonics is going to give us the ability potentially to stitch together multiple CPUs in interconnects using very low loss, but overcome the physical constraints. So it's a step change in how ASIC design can work. And for for networking particularly, it eliminates a whole array of chips. The whole SIRDES just disappears because I have an allazed signal coming out of the ASIC. There's my, you know, 400 gig signal right there on the, you know, silicon photonic being lased into a signal. All I need to do there is amp it, run it into a Raman amplifier, and I can boost it straight out the front end. And I've got my laser. I don't need to have a, I could use less power. I get less complexity, lower cost, et cetera, et cetera. You make it, you make it sound so easy, Greg. <laughs> yeah, but these things are like little miracles. The more you, you read these stuff, it's like, I mean, the whole idea of encoding a signal on a single photon, like hard, decoding it is like magic. Like, Hello, Mr. Photon. Have you got data? Oh, you do. <laughs> you know, are you the one out of yeah. about a billion photons a second or something like that? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. So just to give but, you a sense of the the Brobdingnagian size of the science that's going on here, that's what you're looking at, right? But to me, this sounds like what silicon photonics promises to be to data networking and to CPU networking, like traditional compute. This is the same sort of thing. This allows the qubit processing of a quantum computer to transmit the qubit state, the direct functional state of a qubit computer. And you have to, and I don't profess to understand qubit computing, but the idea of qubits is radically different to the idea of a binary up-down state, right? On, off, left, right. Yes. I think <laughs> to everything you said, yes. No, no, but, but seriously, so we, we're also thinking about the exact same thing, which is that yeah. there, are, there will be quantum computers around, and it's not just about users getting or, or individuals getting data into those quantum computers. It's also about connecting the quantum computers. So mm-hmm. having a way to get qubits between quantum computers to allow for a cloud computing or, or more of what you described, having a bunch of quantum computing chips near each other and allowing well, maybe, them some way to talk. Maybe homework for people is to go and find out and understand what a qubit is. A qubit and why transmitting qubit state is actually more important than just transmitting a signal. I'm breaking into the podcast because we at Packet Pushers would appreciate it if you'd register for our live stream event with sponsor Glueware coming up on September 28th, 2021. Now, why would you register for such an event? Well, there's a few reasons. One, you're going to learn about Glueware's intelligent, low-code network automation solution. We're going to talk to engineers at Glueware along with customers and integrators about what Glueware does and how folks use this network automation platform. Maybe even banging around with Ansible and Python for your automation stuff, and you'd like to understand what a low-code, multi-vendor platform can do for you. Cool. Sign up. Register. Free education so you know what your options are. 
Reason two, this is not a webinar. We are talking to humans packet pusher style and keeping slides at a minimum during this event. You're going to see some slides, right? Because sometimes you need them to help you understand things. But the focus of this live stream is going to be more on conversation and showing you the product itself. No death by PowerPoint while someone drones on and on. Last reason here, your registration information will not be shared with the sponsor unless you opt in. And Glueware is okay with that? You're wondering, yeah, they are okay with that. They, they get it. They know how we do things around here. They want you to opt in or reach out to them once you're ready to learn more. They don't just want a list of random names. They want to hear from engineers like you who want to hear from them. So join us on September 28th, 2021 for the live stream. Register via packetpushers.net slash livestream. I'll be there along with Greg Farrow and Drew Conry-Murray. We're going to be driving the conversations with the Glueware team, sharing your questions in real time, and keeping the event moving right along. Packetpushers.net slash livestream. And if you do register, thanks for that. It really helps us out here at Packet Pushers when you join live events like this because it makes them interactive and more valuable for everyone. Last time, packetpushers.net slash livestream. And now, back to the podcast. Well, Josh, I want to ask you about uh, the the whole teleportation idea that is quantum entanglement. So l- let me give you my layman's what I've read in the press sort of idea here, and you can you can make it take it from that fantasy to something real. My understanding is you can have two qubits and via some magic I do not understand entangle them such that the state of one is reflected in the other, even when they are separated by a physical distance. So from a networking perspective, my theory is you have an entangled pair, you you separate them and send the other one somewhere else, change the state of one that's here and the one that's far away now also reflects that same state, which if I'm roughly correct, that sounds magical, like, oh, I can represent data latency free over a distance. Then of course, the life of a qubit comes into play here where maybe that's a a problem but first of all am i even close on how quantum entanglement is working and what we can do with it and then uh then take it from there yeah yeah close no no. (laughs) it's it it is it this is a really tricky thing to imagine especially i think in in the networking communication world because now we, we try to think of entanglement in in quantum networking and communication as a resource that exists on the network you have you have entanglement that exists between two locations somewhere on the network. And that's like a static resource that now exists in some sense. Yeah? And then the problem with entanglement is it's more like each cubit. Magic? Yeah, yeah. The problem is it's like magic. Huh? <laughs> each Sorry. Qubit, no, no, it's okay. Each qubit acts like a coin. So when you measure it or look at it, you will get a random result but the other side will get the exact same random result. So entanglement on itself doesn't give you too much because you, Ethan, if you look at yours, you'll get a random result. And Greg, if you were, had an entangled particle with Ethan, you would also get a random result. But mm. now you both have the same random result, but you don't know that the other one has actually looked at their qubit yet, right? So that's different from setting state of a qubit and then having the state reflected in the remote one. Exactly. Yeah. And so the problem is if you want to communicate somehow with that, Ethan, you still have to pick up the phone and say, Greg, I just looked at mine. Can you look at yours now too? And then, (laughs) you know, do whatever the qubit says to do. 
but there'd be a delay in that signaling process to say, hey, go measure this. And wouldn't state have changed at that point by the time you measure your side? No, no, they will still be, or at least let's just say no. This can be accounted for or (laughs) magic. Got it. Magic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but the (laughs) delay in signaling to say, hey, go measure this means the latency problem isn't isn't actually gone. Exactly. It's not actually gone. And even in teleportation, which is slightly different. So for quantum teleportation, first off, two people have to share these entangled qubits. So let's say you, Ethan, and you, Greg, you share an entangled qubit, or you each have a qubit which are entangled to each other. Yeah. And then let's say there's a pair of them. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And let's say, Ethan, you want to teleport a qubit over to Greg. Yeah. So you have a third qubit, which is the, the, has the information you want to teleport. You need to bring that third qubit essentially in contact with the qubit you have that has the entanglement with Greg. You need to bring them in contact, do a a little operation. We we can do this quite reliably, actually. And then um, look at the random outcome of these two qubits. It's something like flipping them both at the same time. And then you get a two-bit message. And you have to tell Ethan the results of that. Um, that you have to tell Ethan that two-bit message. So Ethan will have, after you've done this little operation on your side, Ethan has the state you wanted, the qubit you wanted to teleport up to a two-bit correction that needs to be done. And until you pick up the phone and tell Sorry, and until you pick up the phone and tell Greg what those two bits are and how to correct his qubit to truly get the state you wanted to teleport, Greg's qubit will not look like anything. And so again, we don't really get around the latency problem. No, I was really hoping, well, so actually, let me back up a second. There is a, how in the heck do you store a qubit so that it sits still long enough for this stuff to happen? Yep, another good question, yeah. Quantum memories are another uh, big field of research going on all over the place as well. They're working, we're working hard on that here at QTech inside of Delft. Uh, we're actually hoping to put some quantum memories and little quanta, quantum processing nodes into that first network I talked about between Delft and the Hague uh, later for some field trials, but that's a whole nother game. Yeah. Mm. It, it's generally about converting the optical signal to some kind of uh, atomic signal or electron getting that photon absorbed by an electron inside of some other material so that the electron has the quantum properties of that photon. And, and, and then sits there in some uh, readable state where you can actually exactly. see what's going on. And it would be, uh, it would it be non-volatile, uh, roughly, uh, or, or more like RAM? It'd be more like RAM. It'd be yeah. like not very good RAM. Because, <laughs> sorry, no, because the, the, it's super volatile. The yeah. problem is ultra volatile, uber volatile. The problem is that um, even, a, even these solid systems like atoms and electrons, uh, they, they decohere over time. They lose their quantum properties over time. They're susceptible to all kinds of noise, stray electromagnetic fields, fluctuations yeah. in temperature. When any you start working small, at the level of a single photon, yeah. You know, cosmic radiation isn't just a 
a joke that tech uses to tell you that you do, <laughs> to no, try and get actually, you to go away and stop harassing you know it's literally a real thing yeah that is actually true yeah they are yeah. also susceptible to cosmic rays and any one of these things can disturb that qubit that's been stored inside your atom or electron uh, so right now we generally look at storage times of a microsecond approaching milliseconds and we're hoping to get longer. There are some ex very experimental systems that get up to a second, but that is a rapid decay. Memory. Wow! But yeah. this is but this is this is normal for an emerging branch of technology because this is yeah. so much bound up with. Um, there's a whole form of different math invented to work on quantum computing, right? They don't just. It's not binary math. It's a whole other architecture. The algorithms that you use in quantum computing are radically different to what we use in traditional computing or the computing thing we have today, the physical components of what you're doing here is radically different. You know, you're not just pulsing an electrical voltage up and down or, you know, the power level of a laser up and down to get a signal transmitted. You're operating at a completely different sphere of capability. And, and these physical problems are as much a part of the technology challenge as the logical part of the software and the code as well. Yeah, I'm a I'm a hardware person by training, right? Like I mm. I did experimental physics as as a PhD hardware person, and I am always excited by the level of control we can have over these quantum systems, whether it's a photon going down an optical fiber, or whether it's an electron inside of our quantum memory device that we're able to control and keep uh, isolated from all the environmental factors that want to ruin that quantum data that's stored on the electron. Well, what I was hoping, Josh, was that entanglement uh, and maybe teleportation would help us with some distributed computing problems where I want state to be the same for a data set, no matter how many copies of it I have distributed over whatever. A lot of distributed computing systems go for eventual consistency, where at some point all the data will be aligned, and, and that's fine, That that's good enough for some systems, but gosh, wouldn't it be amazing if a data set changes at site A and site B immediately reflects that change rather than eventually everything's going to sync up and be okay. And I was wondering if maybe in the far off science fiction future, entanglement teleportation gets us there. And from what you're saying, it sounds like there's an enormous amount of challenge to, 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 to get to that. And the latency problem doesn't go away. And so I don't know, it doesn't feel like a use case to me that I don't even think it's worth pursuing from what you're describing. I agree. I don't think it's a, it's a good use case there for entanglement and teleportation. I think the best use case, honestly, for teleportation is going back to what we talked about before. If you put a single qubit into, into optical fiber, if you try to transmit it somewhere, most likely it's going to get lost because there's just loss in optical fiber. Mm -hmm. What we can do instead is establish entanglement between two locations. And maybe that's lossy, but it's just entanglement at this stage. And once we establish with our quantum network entanglement between two locations, then you bring the important quantum data that you did not want to lose and just teleport it to the other side of the network, skipping over all the loss that's there. That's really the use case. So if you want to get important quantum data into a quantum computer, important quantum data, boy, that sounds like a really convincing use case. If you want to get important <laughs> yeah. quantum data between so what two we're quantum have, computers, we're have... you teleport it importance of service, Ethan. So when computing is going to be important, we used to talk about quality of service. Right. Now it's importance, importance of, of service, service. that's going to be the defining factor in networking. 
which signal gets transmitted is going to be determined by the importance of service bit. Well, Josh, yeah. let's look to the uh, to, to to the distant future. Some of these things we've kind of talked about where we're at and the the, the physical scientific challenges related to things like storing uh, qubit values, representing it, and somehow and so on. But do you see other either places where the technology is being researched right now and it ends up being mature and something that we can use, um, or are there interesting use cases? Where, where are we going with all of this? Yeah, yeah. So right now, everything is like we said, right? Everything is in kind of the, the the crypto world, so to speak. There are once we get better at just generating entanglement, kind of around an arbitrary network in some way, arbitrarily entangling things on a network. There are some use cases there for better sensors. So if you have distributed sensing across some network, quantum entanglement can make even help you improve the sensitivity of your sensors. Astronomers are excited by this, for instance, because they have extremely weak signals. Mm. Going beyond that, what we're really looking for is developing uh, a number of key techs. So then we need, we want to get these quantum memories properly developed, like we talked about. We want to get quantum, little quantum processors developed. These quantum processors allow us to do things like uh, error correction on our communication signals. Not full-blown quantum computers, but just processors for error correction. This would help. And then uh, quantum converters to get quantum data from the optical domain where we do communication into the, the domain of quantum computers, which are usually things, more exotic things like superconductors or quantum dots or stuff like this. So we need some kind yeah. of, something like a modem would be the equivalent there, huh? some kind of quantum converter. Once we have the memory and the processors, then we can look at building repeaters and those repeaters will allow us to get the qubits kind of arbitrary distance at that point. So right now, we're really limited by the loss. Your data rate drops down exponentially with loss. But with repeaters, we can go to arbitrary distance. By repeater, we would mean the qubit comes in and then you generate a new qubit that reflects the same state and send it out the other side? Ooh, it's a little more tricky. What we want to do, <laughs> what we want to do is generate in entanglement across the whole network and then just teleport those qubits to the other side like i was talking about before yeah so that's how we would see the repeater happening you know you send your qubit just to one station and then that station generates entanglement with the next station and then teleports your qubit to the next station awesome yeah <laughs> okay that really like is a, yeah different yeah. Way yeah. now we're getting to sure. the part where we just go magic yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure <laughs> well, so no, what, what are the what are the time horizons here josh we, what, how much of this is a year away versus a decade away all, these things are all a decade away for sure my my honest thought is uh in i, I would guess more 15 years before there are good let's say higher trl field trials of these things there's already field trials that are happening in various places so we've People have done teleportation over tens. I think the record is something like 100 kilometers, but uh, mm -hmm. it's very low uh, technological readiness level. Huh? You need a lot of qualified quantum scientists to keep the thing running for a while. So is it a money problem or is it a, just there's so many things we don't know and have to research? So many things we don't know and have to research. Yeah, mm. yeah. A lot of it comes and down to- And it's multidisciplinary too, right? You've got physical science. This. Yeah, you've got a lot of it comes down to material science, just finding best materials for quantum memory, for instance, and then mm. control of the quantum systems inside of them 
and then but you've also got control algorithms and good control power even more functional things like uh quantum computing needs enormous amounts of power to get to close to kelvin unless they can find room temperature superconductors type stuff or you know and so as soon as you've got a supercomputer or sorry a quantum computer you've got a whole physical science department doing supercooling right (laughs) And, and then there's a department underneath that which is just getting enough power to run that computer for like when you turn it on you have to go and talk to the local power station and get them to know that you know Wait, just, just run it on the dark side of the moon. It's consistently cold up there. What could go wrong? <laughs> well, it's the same as public cloud. This challenge is not dissimilar. Once you start with a public cloud, it's all very simple when you start off. And when you try and turn it into something functional, the scaling issues get bigger and bigger and bigger. So all of a sudden, the public clouds now have to build their own power generation and their own power transformers and their own power distribution system and their interconnects into the public grid also have to be custom designed. So all of a sudden, what was once a data center which wasn't too hard, just plug it in, congratulate yourself, you know, for 30,000 computers. When you go to 120,000, now all of a sudden you have to say, hang on, we're drawing so much power from the grid, right? It's a so, similar similar story. Yeah. On, the, on the computing side, this is maybe the case. These are big power-hungry machines. On the communication side, it's a bit better. Actually, our qubit generators and transmitters uh, run on about 500 watts. So a computer power supply is, is basically enough to, to run mm. these things. And our receivers um, run a bit hotter, and so they actually have some some cooling around them, which which ends up taking up a lot of the, the yeah. juice, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. But it's uh, it's nothing. We still just plug into normal uh, normal circuits. Let's say. Yeah, yeah. you're still drawing nothing. ordinary electricity. You're not getting it. it's yeah, just the exactly. whole scaling up thing becomes yeah. more and more esoteric. So. Yeah, but but as for the scaling up thing, so there's there's a. So I'm in the Netherlands, in Europe. There's a big project inside the Netherlands. We call it the National Quantum Agenda, or CAT2. The plan is to build a national quantum network of some kind. Mm-hmm. And there is a European, a similar project at the European level called uh, the EuroQCI, the European Quantum Communication Infrastructure. The goal is really, uh, in 10 years, make a quantum network that spans Europe. And even if all we're doing is generating qubits into fiber for crypto-related activities, let's at least span Europe with this technology and let's get it out there. Let's make that first network. And then when there are things like quantum memory, quantum processors, quantum repeaters, when these become available, we can put this into the network and increase the functionality of the network. Yeah. So that increasing the function... So at least building an actual network is really, at this point, it's a question of money and willpower. I mean, we can... We could just keep building stuff. We could do it. This would be fine. Engineering challenges. But getting to things like the teleportation and the linking quantum computers and allowing anyone access to a quantum computer, that's going to need these higher end techs, which I I honestly believe is is it's 15 years before we'll see really good field trials of these things. Dr. Joshua Slater, if people want to ask you questions about quantum networking, maybe they've got some incredible use case ideas they want to run by you. Uh, how do they get in contact with you? I'd love to hear those use cases, definitely. So I work <laughs> at a place called QTech in the Netherlands. You can find us online. I believe it's qtech.nl. And uh, I'm, I can be connected with on LinkedIn. That's the best way to find me. Excellent. Thank you for spending time with us today, uh, Josh. This was this is a mind-expanding conversation. I apologize for all my dumb questions, but I did my best. <laughs>
<laughs> Thank you for making time to listen to today's episode. If you're out there in the audience, we know that most of you that are out there, you just listen to our podcast, right? Like this one. But if you go to packetbushes.net, there's lots more information for you to help you keep up with networking and cloud and everything that's going on. If you, again, packetbushes.net, you can sign up for our newsletter that we send out every week. You can join us on Slack. There's just a lot of other ways to connect to us and to the community that is out there in the networking world. And if you haven't rage quit social media, you can even follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. You could find us on LinkedIn. If you like what we're doing, please tell your colleagues word of mouth. That's how we got started back in the day. All of you telling others of all of you about uh, what we're 